Hi everyone! Before we get into this week's episode, I have a few shoutouts and announcements to make before we get to our latest kaiju film. First off, at the end of this week's episode, we have uh, posted some of the music from the film, a, a track produced by a musician online, it goes by Queer Kaiju. It is the main track from this week's film, and honestly, one of the best music tracks from this week's movie it is it is a bop uh check out queer kaiju on youtube and soundcloud if you want to listen to their music as well as this track and like 150 other great kaiju synth tracks the second announcement this week is miles and i guest hosted on another podcast talking about all things kaiju jay and eli over at the super bracket bros podcast had us on to talk about who would win in a fight between the original 1966 Ultraman or Legendary's King Ghidorah. It is a very fun discussion, and if you like it, you should definitely listen to the rest of this season of the Super Bracket Bros podcast. It's all giant monster, giant mecha, and kaiju fights to see who would reign supreme, and you're going to see some surprises on there, maybe some upsets. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the season, they will have decided who is, indeed, the king of the monsters. Uh, links to all this, everything I've mentioned so far, are going to be in our show notes. And, yeah, this episode was recorded a few weeks ago, so while we don't mention it in the episode, uh, that episode of Super Bracket Bros came out yesterday, so you can go listen to it right now. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to this. I'm going to let my good friend... A few weeks ago, Patrick, introduced this week's episode. Uh, Patrick, the podcast floor is yours. An aging Korean director with hard luck and his ex-wife actress Anjanou. An evil dictator living in his father's shadow and a giant allegorical kaiju are the players in this week's historical intrigue as we look at one of the most shocking and heartwarming tales in all of Daikaiju cinema. This is Kaiju vs. History, Hogasari! Welcome back to Kaiju vs. History. This is your host, Miles, and joining me is my fellow host, Patrick. No silly names this week because we have a serious kaiju film with a deadly serious history to talk about this week. It's not a joke this week. It's really as real as <laughs> making a movie can get, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 kind of... The history we have to look at. <laughs> the, the history is so serious, and then you watch this movie and you're like, for this <laughs> well yeah that's the thing i can you imagine just like happening upon this film and watching it without the historical context just changes it completely and honestly if you watched this movie you might have thought it was from the 1970s we're of course talking about 1985's Pulgasari. is wild because it absolutely looks like it came out in like 71 well, you know, some of the, the last feature films that the the director, Shen Tseng Ok, directed were in the, the early 70s. And then his production studio kind of fell apart. And that's that's where the, the story kind of picks up here. You know, we're, we're going to talk about this film this week as kaiju cinema, as we do every week. But it's really hard to separate it completely from the circumstances of its creation which you know maybe you know about listeners before even even getting to this podcast episode but uh, we're gonna we're gonna go into it in depth about it suffice to say we did not pay money to watch this film and you shouldn't if if you find it out there i don't think there's a way to like legally watch this. i don't think it i mean this film was considered at some point lost to the West, I feel like. Y yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, maybe some of the DVD sales that you you find on the web are actually, you know, <sighs> a, a, a bad actor <laughs> trying to still make money off the film. 
it's it depends. There are so many little mini markets now for this stuff, like uh, Sloppy Seconds, uh, who's someone I I buy from pretty frequently. Hmm. That I'm I'm pretty sure that's that's not going to North Korea. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a North Korean film through and through. So you mentioned something, and I mean the, the whole divorcing art from the artist or the circumstances around its creation is a conversation that happens amongst many things in, in well in any medium. And, and, and this you, is wouldn't, a, you wouldn't think we'd have to have that conversation for kaiju films. No, you you wouldn't. And it's like it's usually almost, not super politically charged or you know what have you kind of movies. And the wild thing about this one is, I, it's it is kind of impossible to do so just because it's so ingrained in the creation of this film. Like without the circumstances, this film does not exist. And in addition to that, I and I'm going to get to it in my scoring of the film. I think the knowing the history, you know, having watched documentaries, read books on this film and and this process greatly enriched my viewing pleasure, because I feel like if I'd watched this completely sans the history of the making of the film, I wouldn't be very impressed i'd be like oh, right this, this is pretty good if it was released in 1973 you know <laughs> yeah i th- i think it was around the start of the podcast because i was like oh by the way uh you should check out this book because mm-hmm. which is called a uh, king john milk production by paul fisher the incredible uh, true story of north korea and the most audacious kidnapping in history it is a wild story yeah. and it's honestly not just kaiju enthusiasts i mean i think just history enthusiasts, film enthusiasts, people who want to read a crazy story. This book has got you. This is, this is something I think should certainly be read. I don't think we've, I mean, it's sold well and stuff, but I just, I just don't think this book has been pushed enough. And I, I think that, I mean, as far as like our podcasts book reading list, this is, I would say, even though it only has to do with one kaiju film, this is number two behind the biography for Ashira Honda. This is required reading for the history of, of kaiju films. And I would say this is probably the story that is most kind of retold out of maybe the making of any film, you know? As far as yeah, there I are mean, multiple there, documentaries anecdotes that you get, you know, of of people having a burst appendix in in their suit and stuff like that. <laughs> well, but, yeah, not even just kaiju films, but like almost any film, because has this ever happened? Anything cr- as crazy as this ever happened in the the creation of a film? There have been. I mean, there there are certainly crazy stories about the makings of various movies. I mean, you get the disaster artist out of it. Um, <laughs> But as far as something, you know, very obviously, you know, cloak and dagger and I mean, just I mean, it's this this to be perfectly honest, I am shocked there has not been a film adaptation of this story. Yeah. So I, I think Shin Sang-ok tried in in the early 90s. But yeah, that why Hollywood hasn't jumped on this. I, I mean, I don't especially know. After the disaster artists, like, oh, what other crazy film stories can we make? Because that was also around the same time that the um, Ryan, what's his bucket? The guy who does uh, American Horror Story, Ryan Murphy, he did that feud show about uh, Bay Davis and Joan Crawford, which was excellent. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a period piece. This is a thriller in a lot of the the aspects of of the the director's tr- many attempts to to escape but we, we should probably get into the movie itself and, yeah i and mean we, we didn't history. talk about it but i mean i, I do want to kind of wait that you know there is a lot to take in because as I know, honestly separate from being a piece of art as a film in its place in history it's a fascinating whole thing mm-hmm. to, to to both talk about because i think i think without i mean like i said i think without the circumstances you don't have the movie for one but yeah, let's 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 get started. So, Patrick, tell us if anything, what's in the title? Well, Paul Gasari Puro Gosari is the monster, the titular monster of this film. It is based it is an alternate romanization of Bulgasari, which was the name of a lost 
Korean kaiju film that that we've talked about in our, our Lost Kaiju episode. It's it's one of the well, it was the first Korean kaiju film, and it is the currently the the only real lost one now that uh, Space Monster Mwangi has has been reprinted. But Bulgasari is is the story of a a, a mythical beast that. The, the name can can mean cannot be killed or cannot be killed by fire this is a, a mythical beast in Korea that ate iron. It is also Bolgasari is the Korean word for for starfish. The the film did not get a lot of international play for circumstances. We'll we'll talk about it did eventually get released in Japan, I think, in the late 90s under the title Bulgasari Monster of Legend. Densetsu no, no Daikaiju. But yeah, most places around the world it is just known by the monster's name, Polgasari. And uh yeah, that's that's what of course what we're calling it <laughs> tonight. But do you do you, do you want to give a recap to the the story elements at all of, of the film Miles? Like what what is this film about? I mean, sure. <laughs> 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 um, if, if you want to just say it's uh, Daimajin, like part yeah, two. Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, has, have you seen Daimajin? It's very, very similar. You have <laughs> a... Like if, if they could actually, like, get Daimajin to be cool and help them out, you know? Yeah, you, ha- you have a warlord ruling over the place with an iron fist. Uh, the peasantry is subject to misery and starvation. And then, you know, several people are sent to prison, including the old blacksmith for you know being bandits is kind of what they give but i but basically for like stoking stroking the strands of, of revolution so the the old blacksmith basically makes a figurine out of rice and mm-hmm. as he's dying asks you know the gods to bring it to life and protect the rebels and so you have this creature at first who is kind of action figure sized and the more iron it eats, the bigger and stronger it becomes. I think I counted like five distinct size changes yeah. throughout the the film because the, he has multiple like baby sizes, adult sizes, and then kaiju sizes. Yeah, <laughs> they they really uh, they they really went all out with his his growth over the the course of the film, which was interesting. Yeah. And so you have, you know, some back and forth. You've got moments in the movie where, you know, the rebels are on the up and up. And then you have the the king. Is, is, he, is he a king or is he a, just a warlord? I, I wasn't completely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm not certain. They, they've, they talked about the governor a great deal in that. But I think he was, yeah, beholden to a, um, a greater lord, Korean lord. Who, whose temple we see at the the end of the film um, that is besieged by P- Polgasari. Yeah, that, so that's that's the basic plot, and they it does kind of go over some very you know something that would you would think only happen like once or twice, but the the army tries to take out Polgasari multiple times and just keeps uh, keeps coming up empty. It almost gets roadrunner esque there there are many well, there, attempts to take out the kaiju there's a there's one time where it's like oh it looks like they they get it because Pogasari is connected to Anna mm-hmm. who is I think the daughter of the, the old blacksmith yep and so it kind of uh lets itself be trapped to save her and they the army thinks they kill the creature, but then 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 she just kind of like brings it back by the same kind of magic that that uh, summoned it in the first place, and yeah, then uh, the it, army's it, defeated. It's either like Holgasari is enriched and empowered by her blood, or is destroyed by her blood. Because at the end of the movie, we'll talk about she sacrifices herself to yeah stop Holgasari, and, and once that connection is gone, I guess. Bogasari by killing her kills himself. But well, uh, he, he turns back into a little baby Polgasari, and then his spirit goes into her potentially dead body still, and then she sheds a tear. And that scene in the movie, I, I feel like yeah. they just didn't understand how to end the film. They're like, "Well, we'll do something artistic and see if see see how it works work, <laughs> work for audiences." And I mean, 
it did. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about how uh, the, the reaction to this film, but let, let's talk so, about the, the, yeah, let's, the let's let's get history. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, did, um, have you read the the, the Kim Jong Il production? Yes. Book? Mm-hmm. And have, have that? There's multiple documentaries. It's on this been a while well. since I've read the book. Because I mean, I I think I read it before. I suggest I read I read this like years ago. I read it um, last year, so it's pretty fresh in my memory. And I had to like stop at multiple points in the book just because it was. It's so in, so intense. It is, you know, it is the story of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, but mostly focusing on the actions of Kim Jong Il in the seventies and eighties, where where our story takes place. But Korea, if you don't know, pretty sad history. For over a hundred years now, it was taken over by the Japanese. The Japanese, you know, from nineteen ten to World War Two, were very harsh to the Korean people, and they sought out rebel leaders to try and, you know, fight back against them. They were, after the war, divided between the U.S. and USSR. They tried to peacefully reunify, but they they were not able to, and they made two separate countries along the, the DMZ, the 38th parallel, I believe, in, in 1948. And they became embroiled in a deadly, deadly war in 1950, um, like a para war. And one of the guerrilla leaders that came out of that war was the first official leader, Kim Il-sung. With the backing of, of the USSR, North Korea tried to become a model communist paradise, uh, like Russia failed to, to do so. And they had to watch as South Korea, you know, backed by the U.S., became much more successful as the years marched on and developed, I would say, a cinema scene that very closely kind of followed in the footsteps of Japan's in the the post-war era. Maybe I would say like at most like kind of five years behind Japan's studio emergence and things like that. So it had a a boom of movies in the late 50s, early 60s, and that's where our director of our story, Shin Sang-uk, kind of came to prominence. I forget the title of his his first movie, but I think that was like the the breakout one. It's about comfort girls in, in World War II. A Flower in Hell was his 1958 directorial debut. Uh, supposedly very good, and the the Korean films began to, like Japanese cinema, get played all over the world. And part of that was a young Kim Jong-il became very enamored with South Korean films, as well as films from from Europe and, and mostly America. Kim Jong-il indeed was the, the glorious leader's son. And while he wouldn't officially take over as the, the, the leader of North Korea until 1994, he was extremely powerful as, you know, I think the the eldest son of of the the leader of North Korea and took over the nation's film industry after, you know, wanting to bring it up to snuff to compare to to South Korea's film efforts. And uh, tell us about the the plot of the book Miles. I've been talking for a while here. What was his his grand plan to uh to revitalize the North Korean film industry. So essentially what he was going, what he did was kidnap stars and directors and force them to make films that basically showed North Korea in a good light or showed it as a cultural epicenter. And (laughs) so he kidnaps Cho Mm Eun-hee in order to kidnap the director Shin Sang-ok. Yeah, and you, you know, I, I originally when I thought when I heard that he had kidnapped the actress first, I was like, oh, well, he wanted to put her in movies. But yeah, she didn't star in any Korean films, I think, until her husband kind of came on board or ex-husband. Yeah. So this this happens in 78. And so Shin tries to escape several times. So he gets put in increasingly worse conditions and reeducation centers until 1983. When he convinces Kim Jong-il that he'll work for him and help make amazing films that glorify North Korea. Amazing should be said in sarcastic quotation marks. <laughs> I mean, we, we got to talk about it because he's not phoning in these movies. He has to 
fight for his survival by making the most palatable product for North Korea possible. He's got which I mean, given given the resources that the North Korean film industry had, I can I can absolutely see this is like the best we can do. Well, the funny thing, and that's not being me. That's not me being condescending. It's like you know, you only have X to work with. I mean, they uh, for at least Polgasari. I don't think budget was really a concern because Kim Jong Il had access to whatever whatever he needed. And as far as some of the technical aspects go, we're going to talk about they had some of the best people working in kaiju cinema from the 1970s working on Polgasari as well through very. Also, near kidnapping <laughs> scenarios, very, very inappropriate scenarios. The, the, the thing, I mean, they, they just, what they don't have is the absolute state of the art technology that. Well, no, the, the, I mean, the, the movie certainly looks like it's 15 years old already. And watching it in the conditions that we can, it looks even worse. And. Yeah. I will say that one of the disconnects for me for my personal enjoyment in general, and this is not specific to Pulgasari, I think it's really difficult to make an interesting feudal era kaiju film. And yeah, I mean, and, and that any- exhaustion even came out in the Dimension trilogy because I was, you know, when the second one kind of repeats itself and the third one is definitely interesting, but still it's more the same, especially when there's not other kaiju around. It just kind of feels, you know... Even though I get tired of the overuse of like the army in any given situation, I can at least believe that something might happen. But, you know, people with, you know, spears and hoes or with katanas and pitchforks. I would say this movie, if any, has the most going for it because you've got the the military making these mythical sized traps using things like rockets and cannons so there's like equivalents of a lot of those you know what i would say kind of like cutting edge technology to take on on the monster in this film it's um, like using a rock catapult to like you know try to kill godzilla <laughs> it, it ain't going to do much <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah, the the the, the director uh, Shin Sang Oak had just about everything at his beck and call, and you really don't see it in the film. The production well, value so until kind of towards the middle. I where- don't think I, I, they may have had an unchecked budget in Korea in North Korea, but I don't think North Korea had crazy resources to spend. It it, it is, I mean, they they do because they got like basically tons of aid from from the USSR and also had a illegal you know means of 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 gaining money even back as early as the 70s with these black market and black bag kind of operations where they would i mean th- they've had a whole industry for kidnapping people and ransoming and and things like Couldn't that for a new camera yeah, the the camera definitely the, the the footage that they're using maybe it was a stylistic choice to to make it look like an older film, but maybe I mean, Patrick, maybe it was. But you know, one of the <laughs> things that they they did, which for some reason a lot of nineteen eighties fantasy movies did, was use synth music for the this this you know fantasy story which yeah i mean that that's definitely right uh, the case with a lot of stuff over here that's that's true and that that did, opening did lady song Hawk is, have that as well you know it's so funny that's the exact movie that came to mind was lady I love, Hawk. i love the movie and it's just the music just takes me right out well yeah and we were talking about how the film starts with a like a, a freeze frame kind of shot of polgaseri framed by some of the temples so it's like kind of the end of the film where we're seeing him it has a great, you know, kind of like classical Korean melody, uh, a mm-hmm. song in the beginning. And I was like, oh, this is a this is a good start. And then it we we only get like one or two of those songs in, in the film, and it never kind of lives up to it. The soundtrack, no, because they just yeah it keeps repeating the same thing over and over again. It's like being in a town in a, a JRPG game where you just hear the same thing looping in over and over and over again. And I'm talking about like maybe like 1996, where you had like a 45 second file that was re-looping, not, you know, an entire song, 
in the Final Fantasy VII remake. Yeah. The, the and it really gets on your nerves after a while because it starts off strong. And I forget what other movie was was like that. Oh, uh, King of Steak, of course, had had a, yes. a pretty pretty raucously bad soundtrack. Good movie, yeah. Bad soundtrack. And uh, so I, I will say this: I mean, the period piece aspect of it, in terms of the costuming and having all the extras, some of them probably forced to be there. Most of them probably forced I to mean, be there. From, from from the book, from what I remember, people were so excited about the film that I mean, uh, maybe there's not much else to do in the North Korea. They like were maybe like that's true. Waiting around the corner just to you know, f- like for free, be in the film somehow. So that's why I think in some later parts of the film, you get these scenes of like hundreds of extras. And it's like, well, it doesn't, that's, yeah, that's doesn't a good, require that's a, that's a that many. <laughs> you do have a lot of extras in this film, which is, is pretty neat for some well, of the sequences. Although they don't, it's only when we get to like the outdoor shots, because the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie is shot on a, back lot like yeah. indoors with with skyboxes and, and things like that and i i was very unimpressed with the the first 30 minutes i was like if this is what the movie's gonna be like it's not very good but then they they continue on and some of the technicals get a little better but uh, uh, like i said shannon and chinsang oak had to in the five films that they they made before they started their escape they had to make these movies to the best of their ability because they were tried trying to ingratiate themselves on kim jong-il get closer into his inner circle and convince him that they were to be trusted they had converted to wanting to live in north korea and they were doing everything they can to promote north korean cinema so this included them like having to put out press releases basically decrying south korea saying that they came to North Korea on their own free will, something that would make it very hard for them to return to South Korea after they escaped. But they knew they had to do that in order to have a chance to escape. Right. Uh, because they, they had to basically play parts, you know, for years, multiple years of loving sycophants to the Supreme leader. And they finally got their chance in, in 1985, I believe, is when they, when they made their escape, when they were out promoting another film in Europe, and they snuck away from their handlers. They got into a taxi and made for the U.S. Embassy, and uh, pretty, pretty tense stuff towards towards the end there, but eventually were put in basically undercover in, in the U.S. and reunited with their family after that, but... Yeah, they made five five films in total, I believe. But this is the big one that came out right before they 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 tried their escape. This is the epic film, the the thing that would you know hopefully be able to be played internationally and get North Korea some acclaim. Didn't happen because after they escaped, they basically pulled this film from North Korean cinemas, blacklisted you know people that were involved in it, and uh, scrubbed. The, the names of of the director and and the actress uh, Choi In Hoon. Let's talk them about, like, oh no, yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about the the technicals, including the pseudimation for Polgasari. It's for the most part when it's in kaiju form, very much like a large bull monster. I would say very demonic, kind of looking with the the giant horns. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to the way the 1962 Lost film looked, but that one did not have horns. Uh, Very much like a Godzilla suit. It's got a tail. And if you think it looks like Godzilla, you're not too far off because for some reason, there's no one else that they can put in the giant suit. They imported suit actor Kenpachiro Satsuma, who played Godzilla in, in, in the entirety of the Heisei series, brought him over to play Polgasari. They lied to him, told him that he was going to film something in China, instead in the dead of night brought him over to North Korea for, I imagine, probably weeks of shooting, right? And then also so. another suit actor who played Manila in the Showa series, the played the, the juvenile form of Polgasari, uh, Maso uh, Fukazawa, the the um little person wrestler who who we've talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. So two 
kaiju classic suit actors doing the simulation. So for that, I think it's one of those things where you like you have them in name only, like they are there. But I mean, you see a little Manila in in the Hogasari, uh when it, and when it's in its uh, smaller form. But there is nothing in the larger Pogasari. I mean, the entire time you just see him kind of walking. And- it's a very stoic character. They they're they're more going for like 1954 Godzilla, not any of the Showa era. Hygiene. Yeah, but I mean, Godzilla. I don't. I mean, really get that? Like, like it's just you're saying so, there's not 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 a must character. Well, no, mind there's you, not. Yeah, Ken Pachiro played mostly bad guys in the Showa era. He he's only done Godzilla a handful of times, I think, at this point. Yeah, I, I just I I think that he was there and could have been the suit, could have been the directing, could have been whatever. The presence is not there in Pogasari. Like if if. Like if you you can tell me that he's in that suit, that's fine. But uh, yeah, you're not seeing. Uh, I'm not seeing lust, it at all. A lust for <laughs> bringing the character to life. Well, maybe it's because he was lied to and basically. Well, I mean, there's certainly there's certainly his, that, but there's just there's just nothing there. Um, held against his his will. A larger and, although question. I think Hamachira said he enjoyed this more than the '98 Godzilla movie. Yeah, he he enjoys Pogasari more than TriStar's Godzilla, which well, he could be incorrect on that one. I, I mean, as far as like the monster goes, no, yes, just just wait until the nineties. I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy the heck out of everybody. <laughs> I think I think it's not a better movie for sure, but I think the suit is is better than the the CGI Godzilla. It's not. <laughs> And I don't I I'm not I'm not a lover of that movie, but let's not be how dare you go up against Godzilla himself in Bachiro. What one thing to talk about the suit, but another to talk about the monster itself and what it represents in the film. And, you know, it has both a heroic arc, the monster, as well as a villainous turn at the end, which is the opposite of kind of the history of Godzilla, starting as a villain and then becoming a a friend to humans, or at least an ally, a reluctant ally. But yeah, this movie has the opposite story. Now, of course, Shin Sang-uk has to pretend like he loves North Korea, but he's probably not so much in love with it right before he makes his final escape, which is, you know, a do or die escape at this point. Having escaped in unsuccessfully twice already, he knows this time he's not going to be able to convince them, you know, he, he did it on accident or whatever. So this is really all or nothing, this this last escape. So so tell me, Miles, what do you think Polgasari the Monster itself kind of represents in the so film. I I side with the the thought that Pogasari represents the failed promise of Kim Il Sung, who was like, you know, this the father legendary yeah. or not legendary, but like a revolutionary hero to the people, or or was supposed to be that, who then becomes essentially an oppressor. Uh yeah. because in, in this film basically Anna realizes that, you know, at Pogosari is never violent towards the villagers after they defeat the king, but his insatiable need for iron is causing them to sacrifice tools and and swords, all this stuff, and she sees what's happening. And even though no one's realized it yet, she understands that if this keeps up, Pogosari is not going to stop, and it's going to cause the destruction of her people, which is why she sacrifices herself. And I think... I, I like the reading that uh, Pogasari represents the, I want to say twisted hero figure, but like that that failed promise of yes. a hero. I, I, I think that is my preferred reading of the film. I know you have one. Kind of, kind of like a Paul Atreides kind of character. You know, you think he's the good guy <laughs> the entire film, and it's like, oh, jihad across the entire universe at the end. <laughs> not Not a good guy. <laughs> How dare you speak about Timothy Chalamet that way? All Atreides. Uh, yeah, so the the director and a lot of film historians kind of point out that he is supposed to represent two North Koreans watching this film as the monster is 
the failed promise of capitalism. This is what happens. It looks like it's actually freeing you from your your captors. It's allowing you all this power in in your country. But in the end, you know, greedy capitalists are going to consume everything that you love and leave the workers without means of production. So this is very much communist propaganda in that respect. I I think it is great because it's both, you know, your interpretation and mine. It has to be mine because this is what was sold to Kim Jong-il probably in the script as, you know, the the representation for for the monster. And the hero, Indy, played by Ham Ji Sop, is of course what he sold to Kim Jong Il as his father. This is the the rebel that goes into the mountains just like his father did and organizes a resistance and eventually overthrows the evil government. I think Bulgasari has one other interpretation though that I haven't seen written about a lot and I wanted to bring up uh, on the subject. The monster is created by the blacksmith, like you said, while he's a political prisoner of a very brutal authoritarian regime and in order to starve them of his talents he goes on a hunger strike to protest his incarceration which is the exact same tact that the director sang uh ook took himself when he was recaptured and, and locked in in prison basically um i think they called them re-education centers for years and some of the most brutal torture you can imagine. That part of the book was just so hard to read. Yeah, it it really is. They were made to sit upright with their, their hands on their knees for five hours in a row. You could not move. Couldn't like scratch an itch. They were covered in like fleas and, and mites and things like that. You could not move. If you were, if you moved, they were they were taken out of their shell, cells and savagely beaten. Uh, so he went on hunger strike, the the director, in order to try and get the attention of of his captors because they they did not want to kill him. He was a very important person, so they didn't want him to die. They wanted him to suffer in that time. So in my mind, Holgasari, this little monster that he created while in prison, represents to Sang Oak. What he had tried and failed to achieve, it, it represents his means of escape, his freedom from North Korea. And in order to truly escape, eventually, you know, th- there was this added wrinkle. He found out his, his wife was there and he had to escape with her. But he would have to take on the form of the monster himself. He would have to work with the North Koreans, work with his captor, and yeah, literally tried to give the best films of his career in order to gain this more fame and more trust. So in this way, the monster itself is the movie. It is the movies that he's creating while in prison. Uh, he said in, in the book, the thing that got him through all that time was he would direct movies in his mind. He would like imagine shots. He would th- think about stories and plots and I think that is what we are like literally seeing in this film is him doing his absolute level best to get out of this horrific situation. And like, <laughs> if you listen to this episode and then go in to watch the movie with this history that, that we're explaining, it does, it puts a whole nother spin on the film. It's yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> uh, you don't need to read the book. You don't need to watch a documentary, but you need to know the context to, to understand why this film is really like a do or die kind of thing. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Shin Sang-ok. He was known as the, the prince of South Korean cinema until he fell out of favor with like government officials who like censored him in the early seventies and eventually got his production company shut down for political reasons they go into and in the book. But this film also had Japanese special effects supervisors, Teriyoshi Nakano, Eichi uh, Asada, who were also part of Toho's Godzilla series they, they brought over. So not only the suitimation, the suit, but special effects for the film were of Toho origin. He made a, 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 I like this little factoid. I think it's from IMDb. Terushi Nakano made a minor complaint while he was filming special effects for this movie that he, he missed 
Japanese beer to one of the Korean staff there. And then the next morning when he woke up, his fridge was completely stocked with all these different Japanese beers. That's funny. So it's one of those things. They they realized they had to keep the, those people very, very happy because they were eventually released. The 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 Japanese crew that um, that they brought over, but not Shing Sangok, not the the South Koreans involved. Miles, we we talked a little bit about comparing this to Daimajin. Does this remind you of any other films? Because it does bear a little bit of a resemblance to what was what was the other one? Of course, all the Daimajin films, but. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about the Daimajin films. Uh, there, like there was was there was there a Chinese one we watched uh, that was? Uh, no, there's another Japanese. Uh, the Magic Serpent is kind of similar to the Magic yeah. Serpent in in some ways. But I mean, as far as like Daimajin, I mean, both of these kaiju's are kind of like spirits that take physical form. They're both in this medieval setting. They are. They both attack the kind of bourgeoisie, the the ruling class, the evil rulers here, and at the end, both of them uh, disappear. In, instead of you know threatening more chaos, a a female character in both films, the first Imogen and this one, kind of plead with the monster and devise a way to get it to to stop its attack. So uh, definitely an influence on this movie, and I'm wondering if uh, the director was was a fan. Uh, do you have a favorite scene, Miles, from the film? Not particularly. There's so many thing that good special effects sequences, at the very least. I mean i I enjoyed the final, I guess, battle between the army and Pogasari. There was, you know, where they got all the cannons. Yeah, um, there there was some fun. It kind of felt a little Kong like, really. Yeah. Which you know, I, mean, uh, I like when Pogasari. Um, captured the uh or like swallowed <laughs> the cannonballs and spit them back out <laughs> it's a little, little cartoonish but like almost all of his action sequences were uh, uh, what about you boy howdy that first main trap that the the general springs on Polgasari, which is like just a huge wooden cage <laughs> that they trap him yeah. in and then they set it on fire no one told them that Polgasari means cannot be killed by fire in in Korean, but the 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 trap burns to the ground and they're all rejoicing until the monster rises from the ashes and the entire screen kind of goes blood red, like it has a filter on it. And as the army is escaping into the the river, Polgasari like goes to quench itself in the water and boils all the soldiers <laughs> in the boats alive. Uh, it's it's a pretty intense sequence. It's it's a good special effects sequence, and it was the part of the film that I I, I stood up and was like, oh, okay, this is where the Japanese special effects team like really came in and, <laughs> and right. It started up the film. Up until that point, it was mostly the smaller monster Polgasari, but yeah, that that's the point where it's like, okay, here we go. Here's some. Some cool stuff in this movie. Um, what one thing I do like about this movie, just in general, is it's called Polgasari, and the monster shows up twenty five minutes into the movie and is a mainstay of the film for the most part. Daimajin is like the last ten minutes of each of those films. This one, he's there like the entire time, basically, and like I said, doing like four or five different growth spurts. So his size is all over the place in the film, but. It, it charts him growing, you know, from from time to time. So that is interesting. And, and you got to just imagine he's eating metal that entire time. I mean, yeah, that's that's his shtick. Are, are there any other aspects of the film that worked for you or didn't work for you in particular? I mean, I mean, part of it is, you know, with our with the subtitles that we have. I don't know how much effort went into the localization. It the script feels very basic it's very very by the numbers it's very there's there's like yes let's get to the next plot point like it's there's not, not a whole lot of like there's not a lot of character going around it almost feels, it feels like a play in a sense yeah yeah i mean it's, um it's very stock characters your your hero character his cousin the kind of feigning damsel in, in a lot of aspects of the film like I said, I thought the the amount of people they had, and especially with costuming and stuff, was was pretty, I guess, impressive. But I mean, I'm not gonna lie this this movie is not really not it's not 
a big hit for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, 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 I found both the script and with the way it was shot and the way it paced itself and the just overbearing repetition of the score, difficult to get through, to be honest. Yeah. I, and, you know, as I said, I, I, because whether it through unhappiness or the suit being not good in, in performing, uh, the monster's there on camera, but there's nothing to it to me. Pretty, pretty and, stoic monster, indeed. Well, and not only that, but like he, I mean, that certainly feels like a, a statue. Like there's almost like Dimension, although Dimension at least has some sort of, you know, <laughs> he's got attitude. Dimension, he's got that face. Yeah, he's got, he he's got expressions, and yeah, there's <laughs> well, a lot about. A lot no, about not really. Like, he's he's got a mask, but that I feel like one I could, expression, I could, Dimension. I feel like I, was really I feel good. like I could be kinder if it was, you know, if, if, oh, this is a. Lost film from 1968. You know, I could be like, well, this, that, and the other. But I mean, especially when you have pros from other kaiju films, you have a celebrated director, even though he is being held against his will. You have at least some interesting plotting in terms of trying to be subversive while also placating your captor audience. Uh-huh. And so, and again, that's that's the whole thing about like not being able to free it from its uh, creation because, like, in certain aspects, I think, oh yeah, this is kind of you know interesting and and a little brilliant, but I'm also like, this movie is extremely boring. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned it uh, it looking older than it is. The the same thing happened with when we eventually were able to watch Space Monster Mwangi. It felt like a late fifties film. It wasn't helped that it was black and white, but it you know it we we are watching these in chronological order on the podcast for history reasons, <laughs> but also for to talk about these movies in and amongst their peers. And this film doesn't feel like it is amongst. I mean, I guess it kind of feels like a, it, it sits right very well in the 1980s, which has multiple kind of films with that are pastiches of <laughs> 60s and, and 70s projects and, and yeah, things like that. But for sure, th- th- this does feel like it was transported out of, I mean, the latest, I would say, like 1976 or 1975, somewhere in there, right into 1985. The legacy for this film Shin Sang-ok tried to – he lived on in the U.S., tried to get accepted back into South Korea. But like I said, there were questions about his allegiance, whether he was willing and, and acted in coordination with Kim Jong-il. Uh, those questions remained persisted until his death in 2006, unfortunately. He would go on to make another kaiju movie in 1996 that we are going to watch next season called Galgameth. Which I never heard of before. Right. It is a nightmarish kaiju film we're going to be looking at next season. But he also, I didn't know this, went on to produce and direct multiple Three Ninja films. I don't know about you, so, but I, I love those films as a kid. So I, I, I was waiting to bring that up because I was like, this guy has directed a work relevant to me and my childhood. I am a huge fan of the Three Ninjas trilogy. Yes, I know. <laughs> the High New Mountain film exists with Hulk Hogan and and may he rest in peace, the incomparable Jim Varney as a villain. Oh, uh, wow. I don't know if I've seen that one. It's not great, but yeah. like it's got so many things that I love in it. It's it's a weird thing because, I mean, I'm a huge, you know this, I'm a huge Jim Varney stan. Like, I, I, I have a Ernest Scared Stupid hat. What's not uh, to love? Uh, and oh, would I would have loved to have seen Jim Varney in a kaiju film. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of the three ninja films, so I'm I'm glad he got to do some some fun stuff, you know, over here. I because I think the two he did, which is Kick Back and Knuckle Up, are were shot back to back. Even he, though he uh, was a producer on High Noon as well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, Knuckle Up, I think was released. If I'm getting to switched, I f- I forget. But the third one was released like a year and a half later, despite them both being shot at the same time. <laughs> or, or roughly funny. the same time they were shot back to back but i yeah. think like he he directed actor comes back and all this stuff he directed knuckle up and he wrote kickback um, gotcha. so he, he's all over this he he's written he's uh produced he's directed 
and I forget if he was involved in the first film or not, but uh, yeah, that so he did find some success here in the U.S. He had some South Korean films as well, but you know he was able to watch South Korean cinema become more and more popular in the '90s and early 2000s. Sadly, I think he he missed getting to see the host before before shuffling off this this mortal coil which came out like a month after his death in 2006 but can you imagine like <laughs> actually getting to see something uh, so lauded come out in the the kaiju realm like that i mean yeah <laughs> but i mean there's uh, uh, even even the that that early on there's so much buzz about South Korean cinema, you know, like well, yeah, I mean, for so for South Korean cinema, yeah, I mean things like that. It was also around the time that the West was really discovering South Korean cinema. I know we're on a tangent here, but we are talking about Korea, uh, which is, I mean, I don't think we're going to talk about Korea again till the host, right? Maybe, yeah, yeah, it might be so a while. During during the the early to mid two thousands, in lieu of the J horror boom, studios were buying. Asian genre films like hotcakes. And that included like crime films as well. Mm. So there were a lot of films from South Korea that were being imported here. And it's it's really why a lot of people got to see like the Vengeance trilogy, Old Boy and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. And like um, I, I watched them around that time, around 2006, yeah, 2007. So they were released by a by Tartan Palisades, who would release them on the imprint Tartan Asian Extreme. Oh, and yeah, I remember that. I mean, I would go to Best Buy because it felt like one was coming out like every week. I had so many of those DVDs. And there was a lot of great crime films. There was genre films. I don't think the host was released under that branch because director Bong is was even then extremely lauded, although he started off with some pretty heavy crime films. So you you get this this especially after Old Boy really blows up, you get this focus on Korean cinema. And people are seeing a lot of these films with fresh eyes in the West on and I and I should say this, it's it's not that people have never seen Korean cinema, but we're talking about stuff that you can find at Best Buy yeah, that in means- South Carolina. I mean, DVDs are still like kind of a luxury when Old Boy came out. So getting uh, that by mid two thousands, it was a pretty pretty common thing. It, it it had finally started to cross over because it was starting. You know, the DVD stuff. I mean, once once PlayStation two I was came about out to say one. Um, yeah, that that was it, that was really the the the. But like, still, I feel like. For international films like that to to get wide releases here was still pretty rare, which is why the, that imprint was so important. And yeah. by getting eyeballs on this stuff, it it kind of it helped bleed into the the mainstream audiences here about this cinema existing. So that when stuff like The Host comes out, and then obviously later Parasite, which wins the Oscar, yes, much much know, later, it, but you no, know, much 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 later, absolutely. But like that kind of stuff you know, really highlights Korean cinema. And, you know, I'm not going to say it starts here. I would have loved for him to get to see more of that because he passed away, away basically right as that was happening. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad it also wasn't a case of like, oh, he never directed again. Like he had his hand in, in you know, some franchise, franchises here and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm excited at least that I'm excited to talk about Galgameth. I've never seen it before. I've been saving it for this podcast Uh, next season. (laughs) My whole next season. But uh, we got we got to rate this movie before we we move on here. Uh, I think we've we've talked about our enjoyment a great deal of this film. For me, it is difficult to score. Like I said, hard to divorce the history from the creation. But for me, watching this, having all this metatextual level history for the film enriches my experience so much it is why we wanted to make this podcast is to really dig into these stories behind the stories that we love so much so yeah if i'd watched this without any knowledge it would be pretty low score for personal enjoyment but with 
<laughs> the knowledge. I was like glued to the screen, like dissecting and analyzing every scene. Still, it's it is a hard watch, and I think you'll your score will belay that. Uh, I'm giving it a seven out of ten for for personal wow! enjoyment. That's way higher than I expected. Yeah, I can see myself rewatching it, but mostly academically, if that makes sense. But so once again, this is just for me watching it. Right. So the 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 historical aspect really focuses more into my 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 kind of cultural significance and evocative score for flat out personal enjoyment. I did not like this movie at all. I thought it was extremely boring. I thought it was a very tough watch. I think the 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 play like script just does not work for me when I when I'm trying to watch it outside of it, of the context, which I said is impossible. But even within the context, this movie it's it's a chore for me to watch. And you know, yes, there's a couple of neat scenes, but I feel like the 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 title creature does not do a lot, despite the suit actors they have in it. And I mean. Yeah, it's only yeah, 95 I mean, just, minutes, but it does feel longer I, uh, for certain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for flat out personal enjoyment, I mean, I just I had a lousy time with this one. And so I for my personal enjoyment, for my flat out personal enjoyment, it's getting a four. OK, yeah. Let me, Actually, I mean, really? No, it gets a three. Oh, my goodness. That's uh, you really do not enjoy that's, this. That's very low. Miles. <laughs> but I mean, that's why that is. The only thing that we were really not being super objective about. It's just like right. how we responded to to watching the film. Something has to be like a six or above for me to like really want to go back and revisit. And I think I would go back and revisit. Yeah, the, this, this is not one. I mean, it's not like Queen Kong. We're like, I never want to see this again. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to be sneaking this one out at all. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll watch documentaries about it. I'll read about it, but I'm not. Well, that's it. that's the thing. Some of the documentaries, things that you just find on YouTube right now, are like ten out of ten as far as right. you know documentaries go. So if you are uh, looking to spend uh, an hour and a half, you could probably do so better served with finding out about the history. I guess you just listen to an hour of us talking about this podcast, but or talking about the movie. Uh, get, go go watch a more documentary. He says, "Well." For the technical aspect, what do you what do you have for a score, Miles? Uh, I'm, so I'm this one's a little more complicated because yeah. you know you have the metatextual stuff to to deal with and how that was definitely handled. Because it's the one thing I think this film does very well is the fact that there was a a perceived context for the captors and then a you know apparent context for anyone else, and I think that's that's commendable despite the fact that i think the script is itself as far as the dialogue not very good the acting is fine and it's mm. not nothing to write home about it's impressive that they have some of the the costuming and the amount of extras they did i think pogasari i've said enough about the suit i think i think it looks kind of clumsy it's not very evocative but i mean in terms of the technical aspect, it's 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 baseline okay. I mean, I, it really loses points for that camera work and uh, it looking 15 years old. So I, I'm giving it a five because I think it's kind of baseline okay in some aspects. I think some aspects are strong, but I think other aspects are extremely weak. So it just gets right in the middle for me. It's, it's one of those movies that I think is so technically great in some parts when it has its shortcomings they are so bad it detracts and like makes you forget like this is a professional toho special effects team but then when you set it against like the story and some of the 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 acting which is like maybe purposefully hammy and kind of you know, vaudevillian and like over the top in in, in some aspects it just clashes like i said the music atrocious some of those early sets in the film feel like they're right out of a 1970s television series it is very distracting earlier on in, in the film the uh, the village set and yeah uh, the acting audacious at times and too dark and realistic and other times uh indy's mother's torture scene was so brutal seems so realistic i don't understand how they allowed it in the film like it just 
just screams to me like, hey, look, this is what what evil authoritarian governments do to its citizens to extract information. This is just such a brutal torture scene. I do like the pseudomation. I do like the scale. And I like Polgaseri's costume. I I mean, it is nothing super special, but it is a well-designed suit. I think even for 1980s kind of standards. That being said, it does pale in comparison to Return of Godzilla, which I think we gave somewhere in the neighborhood of an 8 or a 9 on its technicals. Uh, so I'm giving this a 7 as well for, for its technical aspect. And for its evocative nature, I'm not going super low as well because I really think the story, the, the, this place, this movie's place in kaiju history is like so important. This is a film that should be watched. This is a film that should be remembered and so I'm giving it an 8 out of 10 for its evocative nature as a, as a piece of art. Knowing the history of this film really puts it in a whole different category. An 8 out of 10 on our scale is enlightening. I think this movie is very enlightening. It, you, you get a window into North Korea, a window into Kim Jong-il's mind, as well as the director and kaiju cinema. And yeah, it's one of those stories that I just love to talk about. That's why we, we've done an hour on this movie. And yeah, you're probably going to get some more mileage just reading the book uh, or watching a documentary on the subject, but it is entertaining enough to where I think it is is worth watching. Uh, what about you, Miles? What about your evocative score? So the I, I agree that the evocative score needs to be higher for its place in kaiju history, for everything involved about it. I think it, it, despite the fact that I do not like it at all, I think it's a very important film. It's certainly one that needs to be talked about within the canon of kaiju history. So I, I'm, I give it a 7 out of 10 in that respect because, you know, I don't think the film itself is that evocative, but I think its place is. So I have to be... I have to kind of balance that, but I, I absolutely think it's it's something that you should at least study, at least read the books and the doc or see the documentary on it. And if and if you are so inclined to at least want to witness the the piece of history that is Pogosari, by all means, see it. I think academically, academically, it is an interesting film. I don't think it's a good one. It is an eye opening film because uh, our our final scores average together. Uh, I gave it a, a seven. You gave it a five. Brings it to a six out of ten for the podcast. God, that's too high. <laughs> it's just one over what you were uh, were advocating for. I, I know what it was. Just one over. But yeah, I think that, I mean, your five is what we call mixed feelings. Uh, my seven is very good, which as far as history goes, it is very good. But yeah, if you if you know, like I said at the top of this episode, don't support <laughs> the re- regime. Don't pay money for this. It's not going to anybody that you know ever created this. If you find it somewhere online, but uh, do I mean it's on YouTube? Not great scans, but it's on YouTube to watch. Uh, so yeah, Polgasari six out of ten. Uh, that's gonna do it for this episode. Um, if you are just finding out about Polgasari and want to talk about it, have questions, email us at kaiju versus history at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at kaiju versus history and check out all of our reviews, our scores, and a five star format on our Letterboxd account. We are kaiju versus history on Letterboxd. Miles! Hey, what? <laughs> we survived Polgasari, Miles. What are what are we awarded with uh, next week on the show? Oh, thank you, Patrick, and thank you, listeners. And we're going to catch you next week when a living legend lives again. Yes, this time the giant ape stays clear of skyscrapers. So tune in next week for history versus King Kong lips. It's more King Kong. Yeah. <laughs>